everyone, and welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, and this is episode 113, Type 2 Diabetes Part 2. Almost got trapped in my own sentence structure there, but this one, we're going to cover uh, the lifestyle interventions that we can use to combat type 2 diabetes. I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Austin Baraki, who's looking very vigorous right now. No, this is just uh, the night after a our first seminar back here in Norfolk, Virginia. So uh, we're going to answer some of the rapid-fire questions that you guys submitted to us for our lightning round um, at the end of this podcast. And then, uh, yeah, you'll hear part two starting now. So we're starting with exercise. And exercise has some direct and indirect effects on blood sugar management. From an indirect standpoint, we can achieve increased amounts of weight loss, particularly with increased exercise, which we've already discussed. From a direct standpoint, we get a drop in blood sugar by a few cool mechanisms. So uh, one with vigorous intensity uh, aerobic training, which would be high intensity interval training or very uh, vigorous sorts of efforts or resistance training, we actually tend to use a substantial amount of sugar from the blood to fuel exercise. Also blood uh, are also sugar that's stored in the muscle. Also uh, with respect to uh, mechanically loaded exercise, which would be resistance training, we tend to see an increase in the GLUT4 receptor expression on the level of the muscle tissue, which actually will allow the muscle to take sugar from the bloodstream into the muscle without insulin. So you can actually uh, control blood sugar or help aid in blood sugar control via exercise by both using sugar from the blood for fuel and then also increasing the transport of the sugar out of the blood into the muscle via that GLUT4 translocation that is increased primarily through uh, weight-bearing exercise. So let's talk training. In a great turn of face, the ADA and their latest recommendations now are enthusiastically recommending high-intensity interval training if somebody prefers to do that over aerobic training, and they're recommending resistance training. Not only just the twice-weekly resistance training that we see in the 2018 Physical Activity Guidelines for Americans, but they actually prefer three days of resistance training. They want them to lift. Uh, So yeah, they say twice, but preferably three days of resistance training uh, and three to seven days of aerobic training and specify they prefer no more than two consecutive days without aerobic training. So effectively, they're, they're reiterating the 2018 Physical Activity Guidelines for Americans which we've hammered over and over and over again, have linked them in the description below. If you, interestingly, and probably most germane to this discussion, there's not a minimum threshold for benefit, meaning that if somebody, you know, either can't meet the minimum sort of exercise guidelines, which is the twice weekly resistance training and, you know, 150 minutes per week of moderate intensity aerobic training, if they can't meet it, look, get as close as you can or do something. Something is better than nothing then they see a benefit from literally any sort of exercise. Let's talk specifically about resistance training. Um, and as far as like the data we have on that actually improving diabetes, uh, uh, either outcomes or, or surrogate um, outcomes, because people will say, well, you should just do cardio because that's going to help you lose more weight, which we know not to be the case. We know that combined resistance training and aerobic training is actually better than aerobic training or resistance training alone for losing body weight. Uh, but what, what about the effect on uh, diabetes itself. So 16 weeks of resistance training three times a week resulted in a substantial uh, uh, reduction in hemoglobin A1C, about 1.1%, and reduced the dose of prescribed anti-diabetic medication in 72% of the exercisers compared to the control group who didn't do any resistance training. It also increased lean mass, 
They reduced systolic blood pressure, decreased fat mass, uh, all compared to the control group. So, but large potential input with uh, you know relatively little in this particular study. They were actually resistance training by about thirty minutes each session, three times a week. So that's ninety minutes of buy-in. You're effectively asking for somebody. It's also a lot of these studies have been done in women compared to women who reported no strength training. Women engaging in any strength training experienced a reduced uh, rate of type two diabetes by about thirty percent when controlling for time spent in other activities. Uh, and on top of that, a risk reduction of about 17% was observed for cardiovascular disease among women engaging in strength training compared to those who weren't. So effectively participating in strength training, uh, reduces the risk of not to, uh, not only, uh, type two diabetes complications like cardiovascular disease, but also like the progression of type two diabetes in and of itself. Um, so resistance training is part of the recommendations physicians, other healthcare professionals who are working with folks who are either at risk of type 2 diabetes or who have type 2 diabetes should be recommending resistance training. They should also be recommending aerobic training. Um, So again, compared with inactive individuals, those who walked at least two hours a week had a 40% lower all-cause mortality and 34% lower cardiovascular disease mortality rate um, for those who had type 2 diabetes. Uh, Although the mortality rates were lowest for persons who walked three to four hours per week. Now, if we extrapolate that to the actual physical activity guidelines, three to four hours a week is 180 to 240 minutes per week of physical activity. So we'd like to get folks at least to that minimum guideline, but any exercise is better than no exercise. And we'd also preferably get like to get people to exceed those guidelines uh, when they can. Um, most importantly, because we talked about resistance training by itself, we talked about aerobic training by itself. When we know the recommendations talks about recommending both of them, the combined uh, uh, actions of aerobic training and resistance training is greater than either one by themselves. So compared with aerobic training alone, concurrent resistance training and aerobic training results in a greater reduction than body mass, fat mass, uh, low-density lipoprotein, that's a, 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 the LDL, um, a cholesterol that we've talked about a lot, and greater increases in lean body mass and further reductions in hemoglobin A1c. So the quote, that I think is very important here is the minutes of physical activity were significantly associated with weight loss, suggesting that those who are more active lost more weight. Who'd have thunk it? So resistance training and aerobic training combined are more effective than either one in isolation. Ideally, you'd get people to do both. And again, the specifics of the program probably matter very little. What do I mean by specifics? What rep range or rep ranges you're working with? What ex- specific exercises that you're selecting? What you know mode of cardio are you doing? The main things are let's try to get somebody up to these minimum guidelines and then ultimately exceed them using exercises and rep schemes, et cetera, that they prefer so that their adherence is high. Sound familiar, guys? This sound, do I sound like a broken record? I hope so because that's the idea here. All right. Now, you guys probably could have figured that out that there's a dose dependent relationship between training volume and improvement in diabetes outcomes because it's like, yeah, more exercise, more better. Duh. But what about the special considerations here? Austin alluded earlier to um, some long-term complications of having elevated blood sugar and type two diabetes. He talked about neuropathy, different musculoskeletal issues, retinopathy, et cetera. Austin, let's talk about these specifics with respect to training because it's likely that if you train enough people who have type two diabetes, or if you train enough people in general, you're going to, you're going to work with somebody who's has one or more of these complications. So let's start with neuropathy. What is 
neuropathy? And then how would we tailor training to somebody who has that? Yeah. So neuropathy is just kind of a general term that describes a, a problem related to the nerves in the body. And, and we have a variety of nerves that can influence the function of our muscle, our muscles, our musculoskeletal system. They, you know, allow us to fire our muscles and, and move around and lift weights and walk and things like that. Um, so those are motor nerves. We also have sensory nerves, so nerves that uh, terminate in the skin and let us feel things. And then we also have this set of nerves called the autonomic nerves. Uh, and those are things that regulate things like our heart rate and our blood pressure. And they're the things that kick into action when you have been sitting or lying down for a long time and you go to stand up and uh, you might get a little bit lightheaded. When that lightheadedness dissipates, that's because your autonomic nerves have done their thing and uh, tightened your blood vessels down, increased your blood pressure. So you don't pass out when you, when you go and stand up. Or you do pass out, in which case they didn't do their job well enough. Um, right. And so, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Well, so yeah, and that's a, a big issue in folks with this neur neuropathic complications. They can actually have autonomic nerve dysfunction secondary to long-term type 2 diabetes. So might be some training yeah. modifications or monitoring that may need to happen. Yeah, I would say that in general, if you're working with folks who have diabetes, you know, you, you certainly may see some patients who have autonomic neuropathy. I would say that typically this is something that happens in a little bit more advanced stages and is a little bit less common compared to just plain old sensory, the sensory nerves, like in the in the feet, for example, that can result in some impaired sensation in the feet, can result in some difficulties with balance and things like that. So if you're coaching somebody who is trying to lift weights, for example, and they have some sensory neuropathy in their feet, you may notice that they have some balance difficulties and that may influence you know, your exercise selection or your, your, how aggressively you might load them as they're, you know, developing some, some skills to move in a particular way. If it's pretty severe and they have very marked difficulty with balance that may, you know, make free weights, uh, uh, in certain situations, not the best option for that individual, but that doesn't rule out the possibility of resistance training altogether, obviously. So the sensory neuropathy is probably going to be the most common thing that people see, um, who work with uh, patients, uh, uh, who have diabetes. And that's something that may result in those considerations. If people do have autonomic neuropathy, um, uh, that's something that, again, is a little bit less common, but that's something where patients have uh, uh, impairments. They can have impairments in regulating their heart rate in response to exercise and regulating their blood pressure in response to exercise or position changes, things like that. And those are situations that I think it would probably be wise for them to, to talk to their physician prior to initiating uh, exercise. And the other consideration would be, you know, if you're going to be prescribing them, say, conditioning work, for example, and it's going to be uh, targeted to a heart, particular heart rate, that may not be the best move for, for these individuals. Rather, you know, we'd probably just use RPE just like we do in a lot of other situations. And that's echoed in some of the guidelines on this stuff. Yeah, the actual guidelines recommend using RPE. And I think, you know, having trained folks with diabetes and, and some, you know, uh, folks mostly with the sensory neuropathies, uh, there's no real benefit to screening for this in the, if you're a coach, meaning like you don't have to do the two point discrimination test or like, you know, do a, yeah, yeah. You don't need to do a monofilament test or anything like that. Um, but you know, you're gradually increasing the, uh, not only intensity, but even the complexity potentially of certain exercises. So you're not going to put somebody under a barbell to do a back squat if they haven't been able to demonstrate that they can do a body weight squat, for example. It's just, you know, you're not going to do that. And if they can't do a bodyweight squat because of balance issues, for example, um, you know, you might not be able to cue them out of that. And it might just be a complication of their condition, in which case you would have to switch to something else. Fortunately, the unique benefits of the squat are pertain to the squat and perhaps some, you know, functional derivatives that, of that in daily life, but not necessarily health benefits. So you could just have somebody do a leg press or a box squat 
so they don't have to worry about following or falling, uh, for for example. Um, so yeah, you just again as your as a coach, you're basically trying to see what people can do while you're coaching them, and then keeping this in the back of their mind that you know you might not be able to cue out some of these issues, and then uh, also gradually you know or, or frequently asking the person you know RPE on a scale of one to ten, you know how hard. Do you feel like you're working right now? Not necessarily in the middle of a set, but like after a set or in, you know, whatever the workout that you've kind of designed for them um, to m- make sure that they're at the correct level based on how hard you're trying to make the session. If they say I'm RP 10 and you're like, yeah, but your heart rate, you're, you're not even sweating. You're not even breathing hard or whatever. And it's like, yeah, well, my autonomic nervous system's not really, you know, working as it should. That's not, they're not going to say that, but <laughs> you know, having this in the back of their mind, in the back of your mind, it makes you a, uh, a better coach in this, um, in this, in this field. All right. Musculoskeletal issues. You kind of, uh, address this earlier. People can have all sorts of stuff. They can have tendinopathy. They can have carpal tunnel syndrome. They can have uh, things like uh, as Charcot joint, this neuropathic joint collapse, all sorts of different musculoskeletal issues that, you know, again, when you're asking somebody like, hey, uh, what's your medical history? And they say, I have type 2 diabetes. And then you should ask them, you know, you know, do you have any additional complications of that? That should be part of your, you know, intake form. They might report this stuff. But it's important, I feel like, to reaffirm that these do not represent reasons to avoid training or exercise, you know, specifically resistance training. You're just going to have to pick different exercises potentially based on what they can and can't do, which is exactly what you would do anyway. So I don't know that there's anything special here other than maybe being a little bit more tuned in or a little more sensitive to this stuff based on now your expanded fund of knowledge about type two diabetes complications. Anything else to add on the musculoskeletal stuff? Nope. Good. All right. Moving on. Retinopathy. This pisses me off. (laughs) (laughs) Not just retinopathy, like people with diabetic retinopathy. Um, So retinopathy is effectively a a disease of the, the micro vessels in the, in the eye secondary to not, you know, poorly controlled blood sugar. And we don't need to go into that. This is not the, uh, you know, ophthalmology uh, section of our <laughs> podcast. But the recommendations right now suggest that you should avoid activities that increase intraocular pressure, such as weightlifting or high-intensity aerobic ex- activities, because of the risk of retinal detachment. However, retinal detachment doesn't happen in general during physical activity. The main activities that precede retinal detachment are sleeping followed with 36% of cases of retinal detachment in diabetics, followed closely by sitting or lying down, 26%. Only one of six retinal detachments is associated with strenuous activity. Um, And so this is a risk-benefit thing, right? It's like effectively if you're saying, hey, don't do any weightlifting, which is resistance training, or any high intensity, which I assume they're meaning anything above six METs, you know, of, of intensity, Uh, and, uh, you know, because you're at risk of having this bad outcome, it's like, okay, we understand there's some non-zero risk, which is elevated because of the condition you have, but you also have this huge potential benefit from regularly engaging in activity. Uh, how do you, how do you square this circle? You feel like it's just a risk averse sort of statement in clinical practice guidelines to say, avoid doing all this stuff, or do you feel like it's, it's just wrong? Yeah. I mean, I think primarily it's a risk averse thing that fails to take into account the the bigger picture of, uh, you know, the, the, how heavily weighed the scales are in favor of, uh, you know, 
people trying <laughs> in their, yeah, in, their right, yeah, yeah. in their in their physical existence. Um, you know, there are uh, just anybody who's gone through medical school, I think, has learned the innumerable uh, uh, you know ways in which the body can fail in some capacity, right? But you don't live your life uh, out of fear that any one of those things can happen at any given time. Everything is kind of a risk and benefit trade-off. So um, yeah, obviously you should not listen to us. You should listen to your doctor in every and all circumstances. This is not medical advice, et cetera, et cetera. But if I were counseling somebody in this situation, um, that would, you know, I would be recommending them to exercise and to, you know, try uh, during exercise, uh, uh, even if they uh, are in a situation where this is uh, an ongoing issue. Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing here is the data doesn't show that physical activity increases the progression or development of this retinopathy. In fact, those who are most active, the highest levels of physical activity, have a lower prevalence of abnormalities, you know, in, in the retinal microvascular uh, microvasculature, meaning that the retinopathy is the you know lowest in those folks. So. Yeah. Yeah, it, it just it seems like an unnecessary sort of like, hey, but don't do this, especially because the fear of like something bad happening to folks. So injuries and this would be a type of injury, it, you know, is a significant barrier to participating in exercise. Yeah, significant barrier. And so I'm like, why even mention this? Because mm -hmm. it's not based on evidence. And, and, and the last thing I'll say about this before we move on is that if this was a huge like issue, you would see case study case study, case study, case study in the literature. And I searched. There's two. One happened in a CrossFit gym. And this person did not have type 2 diabetes, by the way. They just got retinal detachment. Apparently, box jumps preceded this. Who knows? Uh, and another one was from weightlifting that was not described. They didn't like actually talk about what the person was doing. So I don't know, man. I just... They were probably high bar squatting. It probably, yeah, if you do low bar, you can't get a retinal detachment. That's science. Okay. Uh, more common and, you know, uh, even some additional nuance here is uh, nephropathy, which is a fancy way of saying kidney problems secondary to diabetes. So what is this and uh, what sort of training considerations should people have? Yeah, so this is, uh, very, you know, uh, something I mentioned a little bit earlier, where the long term blood sugar effects uh, uh, impair your kidneys ability to filter basically to do their job. And that can be progressive over time. Um, and fortunately, uh, we don't really have any evidence that, uh, you, you know, well, I'll back up and say that most people's concern, just like with the prior discussion is that when you exercise, your blood pressure is going to go up while you exercise, and that can be problematic. Uh, supposedly. Um, we don't really have any evidence that the elevated blood pressures that happen during exercise exacerbate the progression of kidney issues related to diabetes. Um, and uh, uh, But nevertheless, uh, there are, we found some trash papers, in my opinion, that say that individuals with diabetic-related uh, diabetes-related kidney disease should avoid vigorous activity uh, because that could cause a rise in blood pressure. Um, yeah, I'm not on board with those recommendations. I uh, do not view the transient elevations of blood pressure during exercise as problematic here for, uh, uh, for, uh, for most patients. I think that uh, long-term chronically uncontrolled high blood pressure is the real problem uh, as well as long-term chronically uncontrolled blood sugars um, with respect to, to kidney function. I am not going to uh, be, uh, uh, you know, putting my focus on limiting people's uh, physical activity or exercise out of, uh, out of this fear uh, because I could make probably a stronger argument that the overwhelming benefits of exercise on reducing their blood sugar is going to have a bigger protective effect on progression of their kidney disease than the exercise uh, could even 
theoretically have uh, uh, with respect to causing more problems. So not something I'm concerned with in general. Exercise away. Yeah. And, and with respect to blood pressure, uh, exercise decreases your resting blood pressure on, on average yep. by, by a lot. <laughs> so that would be net benefit. Um, and anyway, all right. We, that's, yes, case closed. Moving on. Is there a point where you shouldn't train somebody who's got type 2 diabetes? So effectively, what are the contraindications to exercise if you have type 2 diabetes? So right now, the American Diabetic Association, the ADA, and the ACSM uh, are not in agreement on who needs to like see a doctor before they exercise. Uh, effectively, the ADA uh, took a more progressive stance and they're like, look, if you're just going to go exercise and you're previously sedentary and you're going to engage in you know low or moderate intensity physical activity, which they don't define, by the way, uh, effectively say if it doesn't exceed the demands of brisk walking or everyday living, you don't need it to be screened. But the ACSM says, hey, look, if you've got diabetes and you're going to be exercising at any level, even with light activities, you need to go see a doctor just to get clearance, Clarence. And um, I don't know that I agree with the ACSM on that because I don't know that you can catch stuff that's ultimately going to change an outcome relating to exercise. I think rather you're just going to uh, place another barrier in front of folks before they start exercising. And I don't know that we should do that unless you're, there's a substantial benefit. Um, okay. There are, uh, if somebody's trying to uh, start exercising and they're a type, uh, type 2 diabetic and you work in a commercial gym setting or you're otherwise risk averse, you can tell them based on the current guidelines that they, sh you know, you would prefer that they go see their doctor and you should tell them to bring up the PAR Med X, which is basically a pre-participation screening tool for physicians. It effectively allows them to go through systematically and, you know, to think this through rather than having to like organically come up with, what should I be looking at? Particularly if the physician is not familiar with exercise or, you know, the potential complications of exercise on a health condition. So um, that's just kind of, something that you should consider. Uh, and then the ADA and the ACSM both have guidelines for when somebody shouldn't exercise based on their actual blood sugar level. Um, and you can look that up. We've linked that in the description below. Very briefly, if somebody's blood sugar is over 250, uh, in general, the advice right now is to not proceed with exercise. Um, there's some additional nuance there <laughs> with respect to like testing for ketones in the urine, which is uh, probably outside the scope of anybody listening to this who's actually coaching folks because you're not going to say, oh, yeah, your blood sugar is 275. Why don't you go to the bathroom and tell me what your ketones are and I can manage this. It's probably not. <laughs> it's probably outside the scope here. But if you're interested in reading uh, more up on that, the ACSM and the ADA guidelines are all linked in the description below. So effectively, my recommendation here is uh, if you get somebody who's new to exercise, um, and they're, they say that they have type two diabetes based on your sort of intake form, um, when they report their medical conditions, um, ask them the last time they saw a doctor. Um, and then you can ask them, do the, do you, you know, did anybody ever tell you to not exercise? And if no, you're probably good to go. If they said, I haven't seen my doctor in, you know, two years, eh, maybe you tell them to go see their doctor just to like go, you know, to get the seal of approval. They can use the Parmed X to, uh, kind of sign off on that. All right. Now let's talk about nutrition. Um, <laughs> and, I, and again, we, I say this in jest because I know that some people take this like super, super seriously. Like it's a personal affront. If 
they say that your diet, your particular diet is not the best diet in the whole world. But our view on nutrition sort of interventions at Barbell Medicine is that there are many different diets that uh, comport with the existing evidence uh, that for components that improve health based on, you know, what you eat. Many different ways to get to that, uh, you know, nutritional nirvana. There's not just one way. Uh, and the main thing that we should be considered, uh, that we should be considering is uh, adherence, dietary adherence. So you have someone with type 2 diabetes, what should the general goals of their nutrition intervention be? Uh, so one, nutrition management is recommended as part of this integrated package for all those for, who have or who are at risk for type 2 diabetes. Uh, other big part of this general goal is to achieve and maintain body weight loss. So the general target is about 5 to 15% of weight loss, um, effectively via a calorie-reduced diet. Um, if the diet doesn't result in this change, meaning that somebody can't achieve this um, based on diet and exercise uh, combined, there may be additional sort of interventions, either medications um, and potentially surgery, based on the sort of risk-benefit analysis that goes on for that individual there. Uh, in addition to weight loss, uh, basically attain good blood sugar control, improve blood pressure, improve uh, the lipid parameters, so LDL and HDL levels and triglyceride levels, and ultimately reduce delay or prevent complications of diabetes. Those are the general goals of a nutrition plan for somebody with type 2 diabetes. So with respect to weight loss, we already talked about 5 to 15% of weight loss or more. How does that actually affect type 2 diabetes, either risk or potential uh, complications. So basically, if you get somebody to lose five to seven percent of their weight loss, or just five to seven percent of their body weight, this reduces the relative risk of type two diabetes by about half, fifty percent. And in this fairly large trial, the European Diabetes Prevention Study (EDIPS), they lost five percent of their body weight and were able to maintain it at three years, and it reduced their risk of type two diabetes by ninety percent. So effectively, for every one kilo loss, one kilogram of body weight loss, you get a sixteen percent relative reduction in risk of type 2 diabetes. So that's pretty good. It's almost like a dose-dependent relationship between body weight loss and risk of type 2 diabetes. So weight loss should be first and foremost the goal for any nutritional intervention with type 2 diabetes. And again, we're going to do that via a calorie deficit. Dietary interventions that increase the risk of type 2 diabetes, basically high-fat diets, high glycemic index diets. Those are diets that are rich in uh, processed carbohydrates, particularly that are low in fiber. Uh, high in added sugars, um, low in whole grains, fruits and vegetables. Um, whereas diets like the Mediterranean diet, DASH diet, vegetarian, vegan, Nordic diets, and moderate carbohydrate restriction all have evidence that they reduce type 2 diabetes risk or progression. Um, which brings up the point, what about carbs, bro? Because carbohydrate, dietary carbohydrates turn into sugar. Um, once they're digested and enter the bloodstream, they're all, it's blood sugar. So if type 2 diabetes or diabetes in general is a problem with regulating blood sugar, shouldn't we just, if we just eliminate the, the, you know, precursor to sugar in the diet, that should just markedly improve type 2 diabetes outcomes. Uh, Austin, you know, what's, what do you, what's your take on that? Yeah. So I think this is uh, one of those situations where if you try to apply some like kind of logical analysis to the, to the, to the, to the problem without necessarily having a full understanding of the underlying kind of physiology that's going on. It may seem like a very obvious thing to do. It's like, Oh, you have high blood sugar. Just don't eat blood. Don't eat sugar. No sugar will get in your blood and your diabetes will be cured. Um, oh, done. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, at first, uh, it would seem like that is a reasonable 
way to go. I think that there's been a pretty substantial body of evidence at this point that's been put together comparing, you know, lower and higher uh, carbohydrate intake diets, particularly even, you know, both short and long-term interventions. And, uh, you know, a lot of this evidence shows that there's, uh, uh, you know, uh, they're of course looking at a variety of outcomes. Like you mentioned earlier, you could be looking at surrogate things like you might be looking at A1C, for example, or you could be looking at body weight loss. You could be looking at rates of complications, things like that. And uh, in, in some of these outcomes, there's some evidence for benefit with a lower carbohydrate diet, more so in the short term than at the long term. Um, and then other outcomes, there's no difference between the two, uh, lower carbohydrate and, and higher carbohydrate. Finally, at long term uh, uh, kind of comparisons for most of these uh, large studies that we have, there don't seem to be pretty particularly large differences between uh, between groups for most of these outcomes. Um However, the caveat, and we were discussing this a bit yesterday that I pointed out, was that there weren't any situations where there was a clear benefit to a higher carbohydrate intake over a lower carbohydrate intake. So it seems like in general, um, you know, there may be a bit of a tilt in the scale towards a lower carbohydrate uh, intake um, for certain outcomes, more so at short term than long term, if we're going to make this as uh, nuanced and caveated as possible. Uh, But in general, the differences, uh, uh, particularly for the most important outcomes, that we care about, particularly over the long term, a lot of them seem to wash out for most patients. And this is not bad news. This is actually good news in that it suggests that people can achieve, like you said, similar outcomes with a variety of different dietary uh, approaches based on their individual preferences, what they what they prefer to, to eat and, and can stick to. Yep. So if you're curious about like low carb versus high carb, what's the best? Um, the paper we recommend reading is in the description below. It's the Scientific Advisory Commission on Nutrition, their 2020 report. Effectively, what they did is they took all the latest systematic reviews and meta-analyses, and they took the raw data from all of the randomized controlled trials in that were in those systematic reviews, and then went through each of them to be like, hey, which diet caused the most weight loss at short-term and long-term? which diet caused the biggest reduction in hemoglobin A1C in type 2 diabetics in the short term and long term? What about blood pressure? What about you know HDL increases, LDL decreases, triglyceride decreases? So the, the thing is this. Yeah, I agree on balance. It looks like it's kind of a wash long term. In the short term, some benefit from low-carb diets, uh, but the a, a few additions there. I don't know that I would st- – if that I think that there's some like unique benefit to low carbohydrate diets that we're just not seeing due to some other reason, like adherence, for example, or like the carbohydrates weren't low enough. And the reason why I'm like, I don't think that's the case is because metabolic word studies that we have to date. So like Kevin Hall and his research group, which have really kind of fleshed this out nicely, that like when we lock people, you keep people under lock and key and feed them exactly what they, you know, we were trying to test. So a ketogenic diet, very low carbohydrate diet, you know, 20 grams, 50 grams of carbohydrates a day versus a high carbohydrate diet, but the same amount of calories, they lose the same amount of weight. Uh, and in fact, the higher carbohydrate diet in a, another metabolic ward study, the higher carbohydrate diet, they actually burned more body fat than the lower carbohydrate diet who actually lost more lean body mass. Um, and so I guess what I would expect to see if there was some like unique benefit, I would expect to see it reflected in the metabolic word studies and then a larger signal in, you know, the, the, these larger studies, but we don't see that. So that all being said, Hey, the ADA 
and barbell medicine, not that anybody's asking for barbell medicine, type two diabetes, di- you know, dietary recommendations, but we're all on board with low carbohydrate diets. Like, look, if you want to reduce your dietary carbohydrates, cool. That's a great way to reduce energy intake, which would facilitate a calorie deficit, which would produce weight loss, which is great. And even absent of weight loss, maybe reducing carbohydrates might improve some of these surrogate outcomes like hemoglobin A1C, for example, to the extent that actually benefits long-term outcomes, you know, without weight loss. eh, I don't feel so great about that, but you know, none of us are like anti-low carb diets, just that there are certain components of a diet that we would all agree to be health promoting, meaning that it's the appropriate calorie intake. You're consuming uh, a lot of dietary fiber, ideally from fruits, vegetables, and whole grains. If you're on a lower carbohydrate diet, it's going to be mostly fruits and vegetables. You're keeping your dietary saturated fat intake to 10% or less of your total daily calories. You're keeping added sugars to your diet less than 5% of total daily calories. You're not consuming sugar-sweetened beverages. You know, These are all like components of a health-promoting diet, and you can do that a bunch of different ways. It could be low-carbohydrate, moderate-carbohydrate. You know, it could be uh, vegan, vegetarian, whatever. And then the final thing I'd put on there is making sure you get enough dietary protein, about 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day, which is another benefit that we see in these low carbohydrate diets when they're compared head to head with high car- higher carbohydrate diets, they tend to eat more protein, which is like, we know that to be satiating, potentially improving some weight loss outcomes. And, and even then, if the calories are the same, we don't really see this huge benefit. So... That's my, that's my spiel on diet. Try to pick a diet that somebody can adhere to. That's going to be the most important thing. Calorie deficit is, you know, of primary importance. And uh, there are a bunch of different ways that you can achieve the same outcomes. Many, many paths that lead to Rome. Anything else that you want to add here? Yeah, just this adjunctive thing. Very briefly, <laughs> I would say, I mean, I think this is uh, uh, something we learned from our buddy, uh, Alan Flanagan, who, who has gone deep into the chrono nutrition world, basically describing uh, the concept of uh, kind of time, the the timing of your nutrient intake relative to your circadian rhythms. And he's uh, shown and discussed some, some evidence around uh, kind of uh, uh, clustering more of people's energy intake earlier into the day, uh, assuming they have a normal, you know, sleep wake cycle, and less of it later in the day, um, even if the energy intake is unchanged. Um, if that is done, more of the energy is consumed early in the day relative to later in the day that there can be some metabolic uh, uh, benefits to to doing that. And so that's something that, again, is not at the top of my list with most patients to to work on compared to a lot of these other what we would consider probably like higher yield things like generating the calorie deficit, etc. But um, to the extent that a patient is uh, either unwilling to do some of these higher yield things, if I could negotiate with them to do something like that, then maybe that's a little uh, a mini lever that I could pull. Or if I have somebody who's really geeked out on doing everything they possibly can from the nutrition standpoint, and they want to do all that stuff, and they want to do this too, then cool, good to go. They can they can do that as well. So people who are interested in in that stuff, I'd kind of direct you to his his material as well for that. Yep. Yep. We'll put it in the description below. There's a lot of resources down there, but, uh, you know, if you're curious, we got you covered. Oh, the last thing I'll say with respect to nutrition art, cause we're going to get asked about artificial sweeteners. They're fine. They're fine. <laughs> Late it, late, well, if you don't take my word for it, the a recent review of 29 randomized controlled trials, including almost a thousand people, half, uh, uh, half of which having type two diabetes show that artificial sweeteners on their own do not raise blood sugar levels. And ultimately better than consuming a sugar-sweetened beverage, right? Right? Come on, internet. 
You know that's right. <laughs> it's like you could consume liquid sugar, right, which the body from a teleological standpoint has no way to cope with. And what I mean by that is is you're going to have the 250 calories from the Coke, then later on you're not going to compensate and eat 250 calories less where you normally would do that if you consume 250 calories from regular food. So having a sh- uh, an artificial sweetened, artificially sweetened beverage, particularly if it's calorie-free, would be a net benefit. And since it doesn't increase blood sugar on its own, you're not, you have to worry about how that affects somebody's blood sugar because it doesn't do that. See? Cool. All right, it's lightning round time. Austin, we're going to start off with something I know that you love. What do you think about using berberine as a supplement? Not something that we think about a whole lot, <laughs> I would say. I think that uh, my, I, I would not say that I have a super strong understanding of that particular compound. The understanding that I have is that it is uh, a, a supplement that is thought to act somewhat similarly to the way that metformin acts. Um, and uh, as far as the evidence goes for it, I think that you know we have plenty of robust, pretty strong evidence for the use of metformin in the initial uh, treatment of diabetes. I can't say I'm as familiar with the evidence base supporting the use of berberine instead, or more importantly, what advantages it would offer over something else outside of the fact that it is not a prescription medication. Yeah, that was the exact kind of uh, analogy I was going to draw in that I kind of view it as like a diet metformin, uh, meaning that I think it works uh, to in a similar mechanism to metformin, uh, but to a lesser degree. The advantage being you don't necessarily need a prescription to berberine, but the downside being it's not regulated in the same way, and metformin is not an expensive medication, and clinicians are generally pretty good about prescribing metformin should you be a good candidate for it and screening you appropriately for potential side effects and monitoring like how you're actually doing. So that would be the recommendation. And I don't think we have any evidence to suggest that berberine reduces risk of type 2 diabetes in individuals who don't already have risk factors that would make them good candidates for metformin, meaning that if you're otherwise healthy, I don't think you need to be on a berberine supplement to reduce your risk of developing type 2 diabetes any more than I need think you need to be on metformin to reduce your risk of type 2 diabetes. You should be doing all the things that we already talk about otherwise from a lifestyle standpoint to do that. Bingo. Moving on, question two of the lightning round. My question is, which parts of the content are the same for type 1 diabetes? Yeah, that's a good question. So type 1 diabetes, the situation is very different. Um, They are only similar insofar as there is an issue with insulin going on, and that can affect people's blood sugar levels. But the insulin resistance piece um, is quite different for the majority of folks. Now, this is not to say that people with type 1 diabetes cannot develop uh, elevated levels of body fat and cannot develop insulin resistance. That can definitely happen to a point where they almost have both types. Um, and, and that would be manifested as somebody who has type 1 diabetes, gains significant body fat, and then they require escalating doses of insulin to get the same effect. So you can actually have some uh, degree of insulin resistance that appears in type 1 diabetes, but kind of classically or more, more typically, uh, that will not be the case, at least early on in diagnosis, when these folks are typically diagnosed in childhood or early adulthood. In the majority of situations, they tend to be thinner, um, have less issues with, uh, with excess body fat. And the other differences are with respect to treatment. Type 1 diabetes requires treatment with insulin and insulin alone 100% 
of the time. There are some off-label use of certain other medications. I've heard, I've not prescribed this myself, I've heard of uh, some off-label use of, of some of the other agents that are more commonly used for type 2, but I would not necessarily recommend them unless you're working very closely with an endocrinologist on it. Um, for type 2 diabetes, we have all these other oral medication options and other injection medications that are non-insulin based, and those are all, you know, fairly effective for uh, treatment of that condition, but that is a big difference between the two. I wouldn't, I wouldn't use, uh, use those for type 1 diabetes either. Yep, save for the actual pathology and the medication, the treatment, as far from a medication standpoint of type 2 diabetes, the rest of the lifestyle recommendations still apply. Yeah, they should be exercising, they should be eating a health-promoting diet, and there are certainly other you know, differences and other considerations that I would say are probably beyond the scope of this uh, lightning round. <laughs> Bingo. All right, lastly, whey protein. I use it to help meet my daily protein goal, uh, and it's easy, quick, and something I can adhere to. However, uh, my blood sugar goes crazy high with whey. Are there any alternatives? What's causing this? That's a good question. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm curious what you're mixing it with and what the actual content of your whey is. For one, That'd be my upfront question. Yeah, uh, so if it's just whey protein, um, you know, we do know that you get a blood sugar response from dietary protein. This is a concentrated source. It's absorbed rather rapidly, uh, and blood levels of amino acids go up also rather rapidly. And we expect sort of a blood sugar response, perhaps uh, uh, probably uh, perhaps more than a mixed meal, which would contain more dietary fat and slow it down. Uh, also, most meals hopefully contain dietary fiber, which also slows down uh, the absorption in gut transit. So um, basically, if you have a rapidly absorbed protein that does that we do expect uh, protein to actually increase blood sugar um, that could be what you're seeing depending on how high it's going i may or may not actually care so for example if you if someone with type 2 diabetes drinks a protein shake and their blood sugar goes up to 160 or 170 immediately after drinking it you know or 20 minutes after drinking it but then an hour after drinking it their blood sugar is back in a normal range that wouldn't be something necessarily that I would worry about. If you're talking about your blood sugar goes up into the 200s and stays there, uh, those sort of things make me wonder, yes, what's your, what you're mixing with, mixing it with, what is the content of the protein in itself? Does it have a bunch of extra carbohydrates? Because that would be my suspicion. Um, or you know, maybe it's just not something that you can tolerate right now based on your individual physiology, although that is a rather rare phenomenon. But to the listeners at home, protein does in fact cause a blood sugar increase. It's not like it's blood sugar neutral. Um, we do expect your blood sugar to go up slightly with respect to protein. Um, those who don't have di type 2 diabetes, your blood sugar is going to be maintained in a fairly tight range because you can tolerate that. But for individuals with type 2 diabetes, if you're monitoring your blood sugar and it's going crazy after a particular meal or food stuff, uh, you may consider altering your diet uh, to get your blood sugar back within range. So that concludes the lightning round, and that concludes our type 2 diabetes podcast series. Thank you so much for listening to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning, and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm joined, as always, Dr. Austin Baraki. I'm Dr. Jordan Feigen. I'm your host. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hey, wherever you're at, wherever you're listening to this, uh, hit that like button or key or whatever you can find that looks like a little heart. Leave us a review and a rating. Really helps drive traffic to our podcast. And we'll see you next Monday for the next installment of the Barbell Medicine Podcast Series. See you. Thank you.